Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond with your host, NLW. The Breakdown is distributed by Coindesk. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Tuesday, April 21st, and today we are continuing our exploration of what comes next. We've been in this crazy liminal in-between moment where it feels like the superstructure of the economy and society around us is shifting in ways that are both new but also accelerated by virtue of the coronavirus and the shutdowns and the economic fallout from all of that. And I think we're now at a point where a lot of us are trying to make sense of what happens next? How do we understand the second, third, fourth order effects in a way that allows us to actively walk towards them or understand our place within them rather than just kind of letting them happen to us? I think there's a real hunger to interact and act upon the future rather than just letting it act upon us as we have been acted upon by this COVID-19 crisis. So today my guest is Joe McCann. Joe is a really interesting, very diverse thinker. He's currently at Microsoft. He spent years in the open source community, in technology communities, in the crypto communities. He's been a regular markets trader and a crypto trader. He's run uh, crypto startups and fundraised in the venture capital market. So really interesting and diverse perspective. But he recently published an essay called The New New World Order. And today we effectively go through a bunch of his arguments. This is a, an essay that was a way for him to explore these second and third order effects. It starts with localism and the beginning of the end of globalization, leading into the roaring 20s of inflation as manufacturing comes back home and UBI becomes the backstop from the sticker shock of prices of goods inevitably rising in the US. We talk about how QE infinity has expanded the wealth inequality gap and why it's created nationalization by proxy. And we talk finally about this idea of national healthcare as national security and why microbes are this decade's terrorists. We even get into proof of health and why a blockchain might be the right way to deal with proof of health, an inevitability he believes, given that we already have a world structured on proof of identity. It's just the next logical step. It's a fascinating conversation. It's a fascinating essay, and I really encourage you to read the whole piece. But for now, uh, without any further ado, let's dive into this conversation about the new, new world order. As always, long interviews are edited very, very lightly. So knowing that, let's dive in. All right, we are here with Joe McCann. Joe, how's it going? Doing pretty good. How are you? I am well. Thank you so much for hanging out today. So uh, as we were just talking about before, you wrote this awesome essay, republished this awesome essay over the weekend called The New New World Order. And, um, you know, we've been talking a lot about on the breakdown, this theme of second order effects and trying to wrap our heads around what the world post COVID-19 looks like. And so that's where I want to uh, kind of spend a bunch of our effort today. But before that, I wanted to just wonder if you would give everyone a sense of uh, who you are, how you relate to the Bitcoin and crypto world, what you spend your time on, just so they have context before we dive in. Yeah, sure. So I am uh, professionally, I've been a technologist and a trader for about 20 years, um, currently at Microsoft in the cloud and AI division. Uh, but prior to that, I uh, most recently, actually, I was running quant trading at Passport Capital as a um, hedge fund in San Francisco, uh, exclusively for cryptocurrencies. 
Um, prior to that, I was a CEO and founder of an open source enterprise software company called NodeSource, which is the Node.js company. Uh, so my background is is colorful. It's kind of you know all over the place. Um, but uh, as it relates to crypto and my interest in it, um, as a trader on Wall Street back in it was a while ago, 15 years or so ago, um, when I realized that trading was kind of moving all to machines and algorithmic trading for stocks and you know bond options, et cetera, it, it kind of took a lot of the I'll say the fun or competitive nature out of trading and just moved it towards software. And as crypto kind of bubbled up over the past 11 plus years, um, I saw a kind of like a resurgence in in trading, but also a, a huge sort of new paradigm shift around the innovation of trading, especially an asset that's 24-7, 365, has really no rules around it. Um, and the data and information being all open, which is very different than, than Wall Street. So that's what kind of got me back into crypto uh, more heavily. I, I've, I read the Bitcoin white paper early on and kind of got it straight away from a technological standpoint and understood how, the power of how disruptive watch, a blockchain could and should be. Um, but I'm also a trader at heart. And back in you know, 2010, 2011, there just wasn't, there was no real market opportunity from a trader standpoint. Um, that has obviously completely changed today. And it's one of the reasons why I still, still keep a pulse on a lot of the uh, trading activity around crypto. You know, it's interesting. So we're we're recording this on Monday. Uh, oil has hit zero dollars a barrel, um, and I was just joking on Twitter that it's the year of things that we never could have imagined being possible uh, being possible. And I feel like that's a it's one of those things that we couldn't have imagined possible is that uh, every market in the world would all of a sudden look like crypto markets in terms of uh, volatility and unpredictability. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because as a trader on the street many years ago, I traded on a desk where we were we were called volatility chasers. We would basically chase or trade anything that was volatile. Uh, so did, we didn't even know you know the, what the company did. We just knew that the stock was up ten percent pre market or was down twenty percent uh, pre market or during you know something happened during the day or. The, the, the Fed would announce their, you know, cutting interest rates or raising interest rates and you know, the markets would go crazy around 2.30 Eastern time and things got really volatile. Uh, but that has subsequently been sort of dampened for the past decade plus with the Fed's monetary policy of, of kind of, uh, you know, keeping uh, the volatility relatively, you know, subdued. Uh, and that has serious consequences. Um, it has what, are, what I call or what I think Taleb uh, followers would call a, a tail risk event where you've kind of you've pushed out this volatility, these little nicks and cuts over the past 10 years to some massively explosive event where assets get really repriced really quickly and volatility re-enters the market. But as it relates to crypto and how things are all trading like crypto now, that's what's so interesting is that if you've been trading Bitcoin, especially or or crypto in general, especially using any leverage, these 20, 30, 40% swings are just part of the deal. You just don't think to see that in the oil markets or in the, or the bond market or the stock market, uh, not, not at the level that we've seen it over the past six weeks. Uh, and so frankly, I think it's actually given crypto traders an edge uh, in trading some of these because the intestinal fortitude of managing positions with 20 to 30% swings or you know seeing oil 
quite literally print zero today uh, is is something that you could only imagine in in trading crypto. And I think it it actually uh, is a bit ironic that the volatility associated with trading Bitcoin right now is nothing in in terms of uh, trading some of these uh, other sort of traditional or legacy assets. Uh, perfect segue for getting into this. I think he touched on a bunch of the themes actually from this piece. So the new New World Order, I guess let's start by uh, what was the inspiration for for actually writing this? I mean, it, it feels like a piece where you just like needed to sit down and actually think through how all these second order effects were going to relate to one another. But what what was the context for it, I guess, for you? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I actually love writing um, and I don't really get to do it enough for, for various reasons, um, you know, your, our, our attention spans tend to be, <laughs> tend to be a little uh, preoccupied these days. Um, but I do really enjoy writing. And I think the, the thing that I was trying to, uh, you know, I, I didn't expect it to kind of blow up the way it did. I just, I, I, I see patterns and have seen patterns for my entire life um, for various reasons, whether it's, you know, living in a bunch of different locations around the world, experiencing different cultures, working in different professional settings, whatever these sort of experiences might be, you can start to sort of discern or distill patterns from stuff. And when you see these kind of giant macro secular paradigm shifting things happening vis-a-vis COVID, uh, the global financial crisis, um, 9-11, you know, the, these kind of like cornerstone big moments in human history when they happen, uh, what I look for are the things that I don't think other people are looking for. And that's where these kind of interesting patterns intersect and potentially lead towards, you know, pretty dramatic changes, whether it's in terms of human behavior uh, you know, interesting new inventions or ideas or the, or the fall of certain ideologies or the rise of other ones. Um, that was really the impetus is like, I just, I just saw all of these kind of, uh, connecting points and had to find a way to, to weave it into, um, something that made sense. I did not expect it to be 7,000 words. And I actually kind of cut myself off because I'm like, nobody's going to read this. This is 28 minutes long on medium. Um, and it turns out there are people that are still that will still read a, a long form piece um, as long as it's got some something compelling to say. Hey man, you're listening. You're talking to the guy who, uh, who whose newsletter is called Long Read Sunday. So I love it. And uh, but uh, what I want to do, I guess, is uh, you know, usually I would just jump around in the conversation, but I think let's start by actually going through in the first the first sequence, at least the first couple bits uh, that, that you put together, um, starting with localism. That was your first section, and so yeah. you start it with the beginning of the end of globalization has begun. And really, this is a it's an interesting section that has a lot to do with this idea of financialization. So uh, talk to me about financialization and how it relates to the beginning of the end of globalization. Yeah, uh, great question. So the term localism, uh, I, I'm not by any means taking credit for it. I think it was surfacing around the internet recently, uh, is, is, is not de-globalization, but it's, it's kind of like an inversion of globalization. And so my, my claim or assertion here that the beginning of the end of globalization has begun is largely more along the lines of the pendulum is swinging away from globalization. So um, 40 years ago or over the past 40 years, and, and I use this 40 years you know, duration throughout the piece because I think it's important um, in terms of how big changes 
take that are secular in nature uh, and global for that matter. Uh, over the past 40 years, we've seen, particularly in the United States, which let's be clear is the largest customer and the biggest market for anybody on the planet. Um, we've seen the U.S. kind of dismantle and remove a lot of these international trade barriers, whether they're things through uh, things like NAFTA or um, <clears throat> other policies that have been put in place to, you know, more or less look for cheaper means of production of goods and services and, and, and create this sort of global market or globalized market, if you will. At the same time, in the 1980s, we started to see uh, an uptick in the fascination of financial engineering. Um, there's a woman that wrote a book called Makers and Takers, which I recommend to people all the time. It, it, it spells out how the financialization of America has fundamentally changed corporate America and, and incentives around it. Uh, and I kind of dive into a couple of things in the piece that, that spell out why the dismantling of you know, trade, uh, international trade barriers coupled with this uh, financial engineering has created uh, what I see as uh, potentially, you know, devastating uh, impl implications for U.S. trade and uh, ultimately supply chain management, manufacturing, creation, and finally, innovation. And what is financial engineering? So I'll give you an example. Um, there are all kinds of unique ways that uh, a CFO at a Fortune 500 company can um, calculate their earnings or their revenue or do certain things to tweak, you know, capitalization rates or utilization rates and, and, and change the way that the numbers ultimately work out. Um, that's, that's kind of like a tactical way of doing financial engineering. The, the other ways of doing financial engineering or the incentives around it are anything we can do to grow the stock price. And if you grow the stock price by doing things like laying off, you know, tens of thousands of workers or um, shuffling money around, as opposed to investing in research and development or, or capital expenses, uh, you can absolutely, in fact, increase the price of the stock, but you're not actually doing anything uh, long term to build kind of an innovative or, or sustainable business. And I use GE and Jack Welch as an example, because the Wall Street, Wall Street's sort of media arm, whether it's, you know, Bloomberg, CNBC, Financial Times, Barron's, and I'm not calling them out as bad actors, but this is the cohort of folks that dominate financial news. Uh, they actually have held Jack Welch in such high esteem as this incredible CEO. Who, who created so much value for General Electric. And unfortunately, that's just simply not true. What he did is he created value for the shareholders. He, he, he uh, caused GE's market cap to swell to $400 billion. But the way he did that was not by investing in R&D or CapEx. In fact, he reduced it. Um, he also fired 112,000 employees within his first five years. And the majority of the market cap for GE actually came from its financial services arm, GE Capital, which I believe peaked in uh, 2000 at a, make, making up something along the lines of $96 billion uh, worth of their market cap. So the, the point that I'm trying to make is, is that for folks like GE 
are now suffering because instead of focusing on the long term and investing for innovation and new capabilities, they decided to shuffle money around in this unique sort of financial wizardry, wizardry if you will, to prop up the share price. And that coupled with uh, this kind of um, this, this move away from relying on cheap labor and services outside of the United States is one of the reasons why I lead into this thought of, well, this is going to have to change. We're going to actually have to treat not only um, uh, the impacts of things like share buybacks that artificially inflate the price of a stock, but also things like, hey, if we're reliant on our pharmaceuticals to come out of a place like, I don't know, China, that's probably a national security interest that we should actually look deeper into. So there's a bunch of stuff that's really interesting here. One is this this theme, which is coming up more and more of a recognition of the, the stock market and stock prices as a political utility, right? As a political scoreboard more than as a uh, measurement of expected future earnings from dividends or so, whatever, whatever else it might have once been. And the interesting thing about that is that I don't think that this recognition is necessarily new, but you're starting to see uh, the popular narrative have specific boogeymen that it can point to vis-a-vis... Uh, financialization such as buybacks, right? The fact that buybacks are such a point of conversation as it relates to these bailouts, I think is uh, validates your point that there's a shifting narrative here. Now, interestingly, the way that you kind of end this section has to do with this prediction around domestic manufacturing, which is something that I think a lot of folks are waking up to and having a conversation. And one of the things that's kind of fascinating to me about that is that it's largely bipartisan, right? This awakening. Now, some people on both sides of the aisle have had this as a, as a major uh, hot point issue for a while, but for a lot of folks who are just kind of like run of the mill, uh, you know, haven't really thought about it before, the idea of domestic manufacturing and having control over at least key supply chains being an important issue is really uh, on the rebound right now, probably with pretty big implications for how the next couple decades of, uh, of American industry are designed. Yes, I mean, I completely agree. I think the 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 interesting thing here is that um, on, on the one hand, you know, you, you could uh, say the the right or the Republican Party or conservatives, whatever you want to call the right in the United States, they have you know been all about you know, sort of free markets, pro capitalism, um, you know, whatever it is to to basically get rich, right? Make make more money, and, and if you work hard, you deserve to take more, and the government deserves to take less, and all this good stuff. And, and on the left, you know, you, you've got this kind of like uh, this this uh, this idea that well, if the people at the top are making so much money, uh, it's difficult for working class Americans to actually also make money. So we need to have some level of fairness associated with the market that we're creating for employment. And the, the the kind of sticking point for both of these that oddly enough is aligning these two very fractured political ideologies is the idea that we no longer should be relying on, frankly, China or other, uh, uh, other countries to manufacture goods um, because they're cheap. Because it is now causing this sort of national security risk. I mean, the fact that we don't have, you know, cotton swabs readily available or, you know, sort of gloves or, or in New York City, I, I saw something along the lines of the, the, the hospital workers were, were looking for rain ponchos for protective gear. I mean, this is 
this is wild to think that this is the case. But when you continue to abstract away domestic manufacturing for goods like that, and more importantly, the innovation around developing uh, new, like kind of the modern assembly line, um, we, we kind of put ourselves in this very weak position. And it is a bipartisan issue at this point to say that, hey, maybe we should decouple our dependency on China uh, and do stuff more at home. Um, you know, I think there's a guy named Matthew Stoller, who's a staunch liberal Democrat who shares this view. And as I mentioned in, in the piece, Larry Kudlow, uh, who was, you know, famously known for being a CNBC you know, financial news pundit, um, is now one of Donald Trump's um, financial advisors, has also floated this idea of, of actually paying the moving costs for companies to leave China and come home. So to your point, this is not a, an issue that uh, folks in the United States political spectrum are wildly divided on it. If anything, it's a galvanizing kind of uh, uh, issue that I think will bring a lot more people together. Well, and interestingly, uh, so two things. First, Japan in its stimulus package actually included incentives for companies to bring industry back home from China in the most recent kind of COVID-19 uh, stimulus. So that's a, an example, a template for that that's happening right. elsewhere around the world. Um, but also, I don't know if you saw it yet, but Biden's first big, full-throated attack on Trump since really consolidating this thing came out maybe yesterday or the day before. Uh, I saw it because Joe Scarborough had gone viral with a tweet saying it was the most devastating political ad he'd seen in, I don't know, a decade or something like that. And it's literally two minutes of Biden accusing Trump of being soft on China. So not only is this a thing where like the the, the there's not clear political lines the way you might have thought, but it's actually a race to see who can be the most uh, – uh, the most kind of focused on this mega threat. But of course, there are implications, right? This whole document effectively is an exploration of second order effects, which have third order effects. So the, the next part of this piece is effectively a third order effect of what it means to bring manufacturing home. And you call it the roaring 20s of inflation. That's correct. Yeah. So the the roaring 20s reference is hopefully, if, if folks have studied US history at all, uh, a reference to the 20s in the 1900s when we had this kind of boom, uh, economic boom, and, and it was post-World War One, and it was great time in America. Um, I actually think that we will see, as a result of domestic manufacturing, a move back towards um, inflation. So again, over the past 40 years, the United States has uh, seen a constant and steady decline, for the most part. Um, of inflation. And, you know, the, the Fed even for the past 20 plus years has had a quote Fed inflation target that they try to to map to. It's typically around 2%. But we've seen even over the past decade, they've barely been able to produce inflation, um, mainly because of the, the monetary policies that they put in place uh, around quantitative easing, et cetera. We can get to that later. So the the challenge with bringing domestic manufacturing home is Twofold. One, um, assuming we can train our workers quickly enough to adopt modern, uh, you know, assembly line or assembly processes, and and the ro and train them how to use the robots and the and the machinery to actually manufacture goods at home. Um, well, we don't have the same environmental or labor laws that places like, you know, Southeast Asia, and particularly China, actually has. 
So the a worker in say, and I use this in the piece in Shenzhen is significantly cheaper than a worker in Columbus, Ohio. And so this cost ultimately would have to get passed on to the consumer, right? So imagine you try to build an iPhone in the United States. An iPhone today retails for whatever, $1,000, $1,100. It would be significantly higher than that because we don't have, number one, the supply chain efficiency associated with manufacturing an iPhone like they do in China. And two, most importantly, labor costs would be an order of magnitude higher. And I think that's the key thing that will change uh, in this kind of new paradigm shift, if you will, as it relates to inflation. The, the belief that if we see, number one, national and a national security issue around securing our supply chain and manufacturing at home, then two, we have to see inflation come back, It's which is something that the Fed has not been able to more or less create or manage over the past 10 to 20 years. So you have an interesting theory for uh, what, how we deal with how we deal with this, or what an inevitable call it fourth order outcome now at this point of a return of inflation, which is UBI. That's correct. So the the the, the kind of fourth level effect here of in uh, of of actually kind of moving domestic manufacturing home and then subsequently having inflation is well. Hey man, I don't want to pay seven thousand dollars for an iPhone, <laughs> or you know, or, or twenty dollars for a, 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 I don't know, like a, a box of Kleenex or whatever that the, the product actually is, right? Because inflation uh, raises the prices of goods. That's what inflation more or less is in a general sense. So if we have our economy, which is right now still th- two thirds of the economy of our GDP actually is based on consumer spending, but the prices of goods become much more expensive. And you also have a rough economy from a job standpoint, 20% of folks, are, there's a 20% unemployment rate, I think that will be published later this week. Uh, those are the current estimates. Well, how do you prop that up? How do you get people to continue to buy stuff and consume stuff? And the only logical conclusion is universal basic income. And we've actually seen this already with these, quote, stimulus checks, right? The $1,200 for the majority of Americans, um, how those have been doled out and if they've even landed in people's accounts is, is um, still a mystery to me. But we, we basically had, um, you know, Republican talking points. And again, this is not, in my opinion, just specific to Republicans. There are also some Democrats that fit this bill, but primarily Republican talking points of, you know, anything associated with socialism is bad. We cannot have socialized anything. And then overnight, that just completely changed. And we went from socialism is bad to depositing money in people's literal checking accounts. I mean, this is a profound shift. And the reason that I think this is super important to recognize is that when you kick something off like this, there is no stopping it. It doesn't, there's no, from here on out, we have to have this, and they may not call it universal basic income for, for political reasons, but that's more or less what this is, right? These stimulus checks are uh, some form of income to enable folks to buy the goods and services, in theory anyway, that are critical to living their life, which also continues to support a consumer-based economy. If you put this in motion, there's no stopping it. And in fact, we saw this already happen with the Fed's monetary policy around quantitative easing. So 
quantitative easing is actually socialism for the rich. We saw this in 2008, the huge bank bailouts and the cheap money policy that was then put in place by Ben Bernanke is an example of socialism. It's just for the extremely wealthy. And so you didn't see uh, sort of the rest of, uh, the, uh, of America sort of benefit from quantitative easing. And yet once quantitative easing kicked off, there's no stopping it. We've actually had to uh, sort of uh, inject it with steroids, if you will, uh, which is what Jay Powell has done over the past um, few weeks with kind of propping up the markets, if you will. So the logical conclusion for UBI is once you kick it off, there is no stopping it. So QE, which started in 2008, leads to QE infinity. Universal basic income in 2020 leads to universal basic income in infinity from here on out. So I think that the early interesting point that you make, which is a, a really key detail for tying QE and UBI uh, together, is you have a line that says it would be political suicide for a politician to stop paying people to feed their families with their stimulus checks. Uh, and this, I think, is pointed because you could replace uh, to stop paying the, the section that reads people to feed their families with uh, for a per politician to stop or to allow companies to go out of business, the, you know, correct bef uh, before, right? And and I think that that's what we have seen. You know, this the the shift in the Overton window on what was simply expected from the government backstopping loss. I mean, this is what Chamath has been screaming about on CNN, and you know, there, there's more people. I think now, at least, uh, you know, have been joking that FinTwit has been looking a lot more like Bitcoin Twitter lately, right? vis-a-vis -vis the Fed. But I still think that this is a really important point that we're not just dealing with uh, principles and morality. We're talking about uh, systems of incentives and particularly the systems of incentives, uh, of incentives around political leaders who can basically like already the idea of summoning the political will and wherewithal and having built the political coalition that can withstand doing something like letting a company go out of business, even an unpopular corporation is hard to imagine for most uh, current politicians. So the idea of doing that on on, on the on the level of kind of individual citizens, once that becomes a thing that is normalized, it's just hard to imagine, right? I completely agree. And I mean, I think one of the sort of the more um, maybe less savory analogies is to, is to use of like a drug dealer. Uh, you know, the second that you, you kind of offer something like this to someone, it's going to be very difficult to take it away from them going forward. And I just can't imagine that, you know, with with a uh, very uncertain job market, at least in the short to intermediate term, uh, a very uncertain kind of global uh, political and economic outlook. Uh, I just can't imagine that politicians are going to take the, the stimulus checks away. I mean, what incentive do you get as a politician if you play this kind of game theory out? What do you get from doing that? Right. You, you've, you've basically said, hey, we will do whatever it takes to bail out these corporations and these CEOs that are getting, you know, massive compensation packages, by the way, that are completely tied largely to the stock price. We're going to keep bailing those folks out. But, you know, the folks that are serving folks at diners and, yeah, they don't they don't deserve any more money. It just seems completely asinine to think that a politician would actually take, number one, take that view, and number two, execute on it.
Well, this is the problem. We've created a situation just vis-a-vis corporate bailouts that it almost implicates this, right? Because people, I think, rightly are, are uh, looking at the d- the disparity in these two responses, right? You have the PPP program, which ran out of money almost immediately, which was distributing up tens and twenties of millions of dollars to major franchises. Like it was clearly distributed on the basis of who had the best banking relationships, right? Like, That's right. and they're rightly frustrated, and so of course there's going to be this demand. It's going to be an extremely popular position to to uh, to kind of try to equalize it, but they're not going to try to equalize it by doing less for the corporate sector. They're going to try to equalize it by doing more for everyone else. And I think that you know, so one of the things though, I, I did want to uh, get you to, to talk just a little bit more because this is a point that I think is really important, especially for folks who are kind of new to the Bitcoin space and just coming into it. This idea of of Cantillon effects, the idea that this monetary stimulus has had the impact of artificial Artificially pushing people away from savings and into markets, and has actually exacerbated inequality because this is a this is a layer of the inequality conversation, the wealth inequality conversation in America that we don't usually get to, and because we don't usually get to it, uh, I think it leads to the um, ideologue kind of fracture fracturing, right? Where my friends and I'm sure your friends who don't spend time with this, when they see you know people who have a billion dollars over here and them, they get frustrated, and so it becomes kind of reductive and reduced to these simple things like there should be no billionaires where really we're talking about the 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 inherent implications of monetary policy so you got into this a little bit you said the problem with artificially stimulating the economy by expanding the money supply is that savers can't save for retirement safely or with little to no risk they must invest in riskier assets to get a return so this is I think you know the the legacy of the last 10 years I'd love you to just touch on that for for a minute sure yeah so it's a pretty straightforward concept that I think is intentionally hidden from most people. You know, no one asks the question, why does my savings account only give me 0.3% annual yield? Right? I mean, why aren't we asking ourselves this question more frequently? Um, I'm parking money in this bank. They're going to, in theory, use it to lend to other people or, or other businesses or something. So I should get some sort of return on that. And because the Fed has created a monetary environment that, you know, for, for many years, and we're, we're already back there now, was lending money at 0%, um, that dramatically inc- increases not only the supply of money available, but it de-incentivizes or disincentivizes, I should say, savers, because you can't make any money saving money. And so what's the purpose of money? Well, the purpose is then to spend it. And so you either spend it vis-a-vis a consumer or a business uh, that's, that's you know, buying something that is then generating GDP for the economy. That's the kind of like furthest logical uh, extension. Or uh, you say, OK, well, I can't just continue to constantly buy stuff. I have to, I have to get a return for my, my money somewhere. You invest in riskier assets because you have to generate some form of a return for say your retirement or, or uh, you know, the, the, the better sort of longer term standing of your finances. And where does that money flow? That money doesn't flow into safe investments. Treasury bonds are at record lows in terms of what you can get on them. Uh, I already mentioned the savings account. This then has money flow into what we call risk assets. So this stock market, um, Venture capital. I mean, venture capitalists have raised records amount of capital every year, year over year for the past 10 years. Is that a coincidence with 
the amount of cheap liquidity flooding the global market today? Probably not, right? Um, or excuse me, or probably is a, it, 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 probably not a coincidence, right? It's it directly associated with it. So the idea that folks are investing in real estate, in venture capital, in startups, in uh, in in stocks, in these other riskier assets, then creates a mispriced asset, right? So stocks have been dramatically mispriced because people are, have no other option but to put money into the stock market. Houses have been mispriced because we've had nowhere else to park our wealth. Our belief is, I'm going to buy a home, and in 10 years, 5 years, 20 years, whatever, it's going to be worth more money. It's operating as some sort of investment vehicle as opposed to a, a form of residence. All of this has risk baked into it in a way that most people don't see. And so what we saw over the past six weeks, and we haven't seen it yet with the housing market, is a dramatic repricing of the stock market, which is and has been radically mispriced for the past 10 plus years. Although, so that that I think is the implication. But what we're seeing right now, right, is the Fed doing basically everything it can to prevent that from happening. And it seems like it's kind of working. I mean, what's your read on the markets right now with regard to that specific repricing question? Yeah. So this is what's you know super messed up about the way that the markets are now functioning in traditional, you know, capitalist. Uh, views, if you will, the idea that a company uh, you know, gets hit on hard times or, or has a, hits a huge bump in the road or may have to go bankrupt or may have to restructure or something, this is part of how markets work. It's how it's supposed to work, free markets work. And the way that you can get a, a view into, say, the, the health or the um, the long or short term uh, benefits of, say, owning a stock in a company is the stock price, right? And if the stock price is all of a sudden, no, all of a sudden nose diving, well, it's not necessarily looking that great for the shareholders, but it's also not looking that great for folks that are higher up the capital structure. So these are folks that actually own either preferred shares, not common stock, or they own, you know, corporate debt. Uh, so for example, the majority of you know, Fortune 500s have been uh, more or less offering up bonds, corporate bonds, for the past you know, many decades, but certainly uh, heavily over the past few years because interest rates have been so low that they'd be silly not to do these corporate issuances of bonds. But when bonds start to actually go down, then there's real panic and risk in the market. And so what the Fed is doing, the Fed by law is not allowed to buy stocks. It's, it's not in their charter legally. However, what they can do is they can buy certain debt instruments. And they expanded the sort of spectrum of assets that they could buy, most recently, down to junk status bonds. And if you notice what has happened over the past few weeks with a lot of these uh, sort of airline stocks and transport stocks like Ford, for example, et cetera, their stocks were taking a hit. Their corporate bonds were also starting to take a hit, which was implying you know, really bad, uh, a really bad future setup for these companies. But the second that the Fed can actually buy these bonds, they act kind of like a floor to supporting the price. And so if a corporate bondholder is no longer worried that, they're, that the company is not going to go under because the, the Fed is there to kind of buy 
their bonds and support the price of bonds, well, then they can kind of relax a little bit. And that also then has a downstream effect on common shareholders. Uh, if the bondholders are less worried that the company is going to go under, then I should be less worried as a, as a common shareholder and the common stock price then rips higher. That's exactly what's happened since the May 23rd bottom when we started to see the Fed basically start buying up a lot of these um, uh, corporate bonds and other forms of, of debt to prop these companies up. The problem with this is that everybody that's ever taken a finance course or has an MBA that has learned about how to value public companies or companies in general, those are all useless now because you can no longer get accurate price discovery or make an accurate determination for what the value of a company is when the federal government would just step up and save those companies from failing. So do you think, I mean, this is kind of your argument that we are effectively uh, showing now the U.S.'s version of how it nationalizes companies and industries? Absolutely. I think that, that the, the key thing that dawned on me was we are now nationalizing by proxy. We're not actually going in and saying, we're just going to take this company over, uh, kind of like how in France, I use the example of Air France is a nationalized airline. There is no, I mean, there's American Airlines, but they're a for-profit company, right? They're a publicly traded company. They're not owned by the United States. And how un-American is that, right? Could you imagine uh, politicians today trying to uh, toe the party line, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, by going out and nationalizing companies? Unbelievable political risk associated with that. But we also can't just let those companies fail, right? There's too big of a risk to the broader economy. And frankly, even uh, from Trump's perspective, his reelection chances go dramatically down if, if there's a recession in, in, in play, right? So this idea of propping up these companies via corporate bond buying and junk, junk bond buying is not a direct nationalization, but it's a, it's a nationalization by proxy. They're basically saying, hey, look, we are going to prop these companies up. We know that they're critical to the, you know, the health of our economy and the functioning of our, of our economy, et cetera, et cetera. But we're not going to do the socialism approach. We're not going to do the explicit nationalization approach. We're just going to do it by these corporate bond buying. So in my mind, you're still nationalizing the business, right? Like if, if United Airlines, for example, and I'm not picking on them, they're just using them as an example – uh, if they all of a sudden have all of their flights overnight for the next three months get canceled and no one is no one is flying, as a private business, guess what happens? You you go out of business, like you go you go bankrupt. There is some sort of restructuring process that takes place. But if a government believes that hey, you know what, it's pretty critical that we enable these airlines to keep this airline company to keep flying because. We have, you know, national security reasons or it's, it, it promotes trade or whatever the thing, the reason might be. Well, that government would step in and just nationalize the company. And now it's a part of the federal government. And then, you, you know, there's no sort of failure, if you will. There's, the, the government is effectively propping it up and making sure that it still functions. That is exactly what's happening right now, except United Airlines is not owned by the federal government. It's still owned by its bondholders and shareholders, et cetera. Um, and it doesn't have sort of some uh, some so, sort of regulations or, or uh, restrictions associated with how they can conduct business or 
what, what they're going to do. The government just wholeheartedly said, hey, we, we've got your back, right? It's not our, you know, we understand you didn't manage your company appropriately, or you didn't plan for a rainy day, or you spent, you know, X number of billions of dollars over the past 10 years buying back your stock, as opposed to, I don't know, investing in other areas where you could potentially weather this storm. We're just going to go ahead and, and, and prop you up. And, and, and to me, that is uh, one of the most profound thing that, th things that's happening in plain sight that I don't think a lot of people are really paying attention to is that these industries are now coming with their hands out to the federal government, basically saying, we need $50 billion bailout. That's what we're opening with, right? Now, imagine you were uh, sitting at the negotiating table. Let's say you work in private equity and you, you're going to go negotiate a company that's failing. Are you just going to say, here's all the money and, you know, everything's good to go? No, you're going to you're going to try to ask or take as much as you can from that business to make sure that this business recognizes who's actually in control here, who actually has the leverage. And that's not what's happening with these negotiations with these with these industries. The the executives of these these companies are telling the government what they need and the government's granting it to them. And to me, that's just not how capitalism works. That is, in fact, nationalization. The a couple of weeks ago on the show, uh, Pomp was on, and he he basically made the assertion that these companies think that the government is the stupidest guy in the room, and they're taking full advantage of it right now. That's the way he put it. The government thinks that that they are the stupidest guy in the room. No, no, no. That these companies think that the government's the stupidest investor in the room, right? The, the stupidest person that they could go to money. They're not going and offering equity on the markets or trying to restructure. They're just going straight to the handout because they think they can get away with it effectively. Oh, ab absolutely. And I would be doing the same thing, right? If you if you know, so I, you know, I, I had a startup where I raised money from venture capitalists, and fundraising is is a brutal experience. Um, it, it is it is super hard and and painful and all this stuff, right? Um, if I could just go directly to a source and say, I need this amount of money and they're pretty much going to write me the check for it, I would be absolutely doing the same thing. But the, the, the problem though, again, and this is, this is where we get into this kind of socialism for the rich eventually leads to socialism for all is this is cute. This is what the playbook was written in 2008 for how to do this type of thing. Cause there was no playbook prior to this, right? Ben Bernanke and the fed at that time had to figure out. Uh, and Hank Paulson had to figure out how they could, you know, prop up the financial system so it didn't completely collapse. And now we have that playbook. Now, recall, General Motors received a bailout back in, I think, 2009. Uh, so industry leaders are looking at this going, hey, uh, we know how this works. So why don't we just go do the same thing as opposed to, you know, going to private equity or going to a sovereign wealth fund or going to some other form of investment dollars, you know, uh, Warren Buffett famously uh, executed one of the greatest trades over the past decade, uh, and you'll have to fact check me on this, but I believe he cut a deal with Bank of America back in 2008 that was a $10 billion preferred stock uh, investment, more or less. So I, I believe he got preferred shares with a bunch of other fancy whiz-bang warrants that only Warren Buffett can put onto a deal, and he ultimately netted about $12 billion from that deal. Um, those are not happening right now. And why? And, and and if you're the CEO of a company, why would you? Why wouldn't you just go directly to uh, kind of the most the, the dumbest, the most obvious investor in the room, which would be the U.S. government? 
So there's a ton more in this uh, essay, The Second Order Effects. You go into everything from working class divisions to uh, vocational training thriving and the implication for universities to video as the new platform to global behavior changes. But uh, since I've kept you for coming up on 45 minutes, it'll be an hour before we get through this anyways. Um, I want to maybe kind of shift for just a few minutes and and maybe by way of of kind of wrapping up into this kind of this section, this three-part section you have on the idea of one, national healthcare as national security, two, the likelihood of us seeing uh, proof of health, and three, this idea of trusting less than verifying and why proof of health might actually be a legitimate and real world use case for blockchains. Yeah, that, sound, that sounds great. I, you know, it, as I was writing this, I was trying to think what is the kind of main key thing that I want people to take away from this. Uh, and it's hard because as you mentioned, I cover a lot of different topics and they they do kind of intersect and, and, and uh, wind together in, in some respects. But if there was one thing I want people to take away from this is that there is now an obvious reason for a national healthcare system in the United States. And that is because it is now a national security interest. And the implementation of it is something that you had mentioned around this proof of health, and this is where blockchain can come in, et cetera, et cetera. But let's 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 stop for a second and, and kind of discuss this national healthcare as national security concept that I'm I'm asserting here. So for decades, the United States uh, has become the most armed country in the world. Uh, we dwarf every other country in ter- in the terms of the number of handguns and uh, rifles and assault weapons that citizens actually carry. In addition to that, we outspend every other country on defense by, uh, except for China, by an order of magnitude. And we do, I think, about four or five X what China does on an annual basis. So we we are very uh, capable of defending ourselves. Yet somehow a microbe has brought the country to its knees. You can't shoot a virus. You can't drone bomb it. You can't torture it. You can't do any of these these, uh, war-type tactics against a virus. And so how do we defend against the current virus and future viruses? My argument is, is that through universal immunity, I think we have to actually truly invest in healthcare as almost national defense. Uh, you, you can see uh, what happened after 9-11. We seriously over-indexed and caused two wars uh, in two different countries that cost many people lives, not just Americans, but people all around the world, particularly the countries that they were being fought in. Trillions of dollars of U.S. Treasury spent on these wars. Um, but we really haven't had a terrorist attack it, it, on home soil since. Um, Now we have this virus that has more or less uh, attacked the United States. Are we going to allow that to happen again? Likely we'll see us over-indexing, similar to what we did with 9-11, and creating bureaucracies and potential agencies like we created Homeland Security after 9-11. We passed the Patriot Act after 9-11. Something similar, a similar pattern will likely surface for uh, or managing these these microbes as the new terrorists, right? That's kind of the, the line that I use is that this decade's terrorists are in fact microbes and how do we defend against that? 
Well, you have to have a, a, an immunity plan for your population. You have to have folks that, that can be alive, well, healthy, but also once those folks are alive, well, and healthy, they can then go back into their communities. They can go back into stores. They can buy things. They can work. They can generate you know, economic output, et cetera. But there's only one problem. How do we know that you're actually immune? How can we be sure that you are, in fact, uh, carrying you know, the antibodies or you've received the vaccine or something along these lines? Uh, and this is where I get into this concept of, of proof of health or digital immunity. You're going to have to be able to not tell someone that you've had a vaccine or not show them a piece of paper that says, yeah, I've got the coronavirus uh, you know, vaccine and I'm good to go. There's going to have to be some way to prove it. And in my opinion, the, the only way to implement something like this is by leveraging a public blockchain. And I'm not going to pick some, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, doesn't matter. The idea that a decentralized uh, system of record that is uh, tamper-proof, that is globally redundant, uh, that is fault-tolerant, that uh, cannot be coerced by you know, a nation-state or a company or an individual, uh, but also enables you to easily verify data that exists on this chain from basically anywhere in the world, is the only way I think that we can actually genuinely do this at a global scale. And I'll give you an example, right? So if, let's say, the United States determines, all right, we're going to create this kind of proof of health, digital passport, if you will, um, we're just going to run it on our you know, Microsoft Azure Cloud, or we're going to run it in Amazon's AWS, or our own data centers, et cetera, et cetera. Well, there's two problems with that. One, how do I go to Canada? How does a Canadian come to the United States or anybody for that matter? Uh, and then two, well, is the system that we're using in the United States similar to what people in England are using? And is that different than people in South Africa? So you need this kind of universal agreed upon standard, which is non-trivial to pull off, let's be very clear, for how everyone is agreeing on how to validate a level of immunity or, or healthness, if you will, of an individual. And so if you can get every leader in the world and their kind of like, you know, top tier health officials to agree on what the standard looks like for proving your health, uh, and they all successfully implement that standard, how can we trust each other? You can't. And I think for anybody that's been in Bitcoin or understanding decentralized or distributed systems or peer-to-peer -peer systems, uh, understands that uh, one of the biggest value props that, that Bitcoin and or blockchain bring to, I would say, technology and humanity in general is the minimization on trust of people or institutions. We're seeing and have seen, and I've tweeted about this for quite some time now, a full breakdown of trust in our institutions. If you need any further proof, just look at what's happening with coronavirus. The breakdown in trust in institutions continues to erode, and there needs to be some way that we can all kind of trust each other without having to actually trust each other. And in my opinion, the only way to do that is to hash your information, store it on a chain, and have someone be able to actually verify against that. I'm open to other suggestions, but the idea that a diplomatic solution 
to trusting data that's coming out of, say, Iran, North Korea, China, or even the United States, depending on where you sit, um, is just crazy. You're not going to be able to actually trust this stuff going forward. And if we treat uh, healthcare as strongly as we do national defense, well, you're going to have to believe that we're going to take uh, every measure possible to make sure that you know folks from other countries that don't align with this aren't getting into our into our country, and we create this sort of isolated or even more alienated global environment. So, obviously, there are so many changes here. I guess as you're sitting and thinking about this, as you reflect on it now, how much of this feels inevitable versus? things that we still have some ability to influence as regular people? And if there is any room for influence, what are the levers right now, do you think, to actually uh, avoid outcomes that we find undesirable? I mean, obviously, we didn't even get into the privacy implications of what you were just talking about, because that's an entire additional podcast on its own. But there's, right. that's a concern, right? Like, wh- Do you think these forces are beyond anyone's control? Or can they be shaped? And if so, how? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, what I what I was trying to do as I was writing this piece is is you know not necessarily predict the future, but try to use pattern recognition to help me think about how to shape the narrative of what the future could potentially look like. And if we just look at something like nine eleven and what has transpired since then at the policy level, at the trade level, at the financial level. So many things have have changed since then that are paradigmatic uh, in nature. And with this shift around coronavirus, I see a similar pattern. Now, are we going to have a kind of healthcare defense organization? I mean, frankly, I hope so, because this is a serious problem that you cannot simply throw money at. You need to have a strategy and treat this as a bipartisan issue that everyone rallies behind to be like, yes, we must defeat the microbe terrorist. Just like back in 2001, we had to defeat the terrorists. Now it's let's defeat the virus. We need that kind of rallying cry. But what will I think, and unfortunately inevitably happen is you will see a rise in uh, encroaching on folks' privacy. Uh, you will see a rise in uh, the surveillance state. But like, let's be clear, we're already there, right? I mean, the fact that uh, it, people would be concerned at this juncture about their privacy to help them actually be well enough to go out in public just seems ridiculous to me. The, the surveillance that has been put in, in place, certainly in the United States, let alone in places like China over the past 20 years, is huge. And and those implications we haven't entirely felt yet. But my belief is that if there's any way that we can potentially influence this, it's similar to what happened with Apple and Google when they partnered together to help, you know, sort of pioneer or or bootstrap this contact tracing capability within um, iPhones and Android devices. They put strong encryption at the foundational level and a level of sort of anonymity uh, with understanding how to best serve the needs of contact tracing while also preserving privacy. So I think as more and more folks get familiar with the concept of the power of strong encryption and cryptography, 
the power of trust-minimized systems, hopefully we start to see uh, sort of a, a, a sea change event with folks thinking more holistically about, well, am I just going to sign that sort of terms of service? Am I just going to allow this type of information out there? And if I am, what are, in fact, the ramifications of that? This is why I think that these conversations are are so important because ultimately when citizens lose, it's often because they lose the narrative, right? They lose the ability to shape what the future is supposed to look like and they kind of just go along with whatever is happening around them. And that's very easy to do, right? It, it's it's hard to be constantly cognizant and aware of everything. Um, and one of the things that I love about this about this essay and about this sort of uh, this type of thought process is walking through these implications. Again, to your point, it's not prediction so much as understanding rationally based on what stimuli and inputs we have now, what would then happen? Well, what is then likely to happen from that? What is then likely to happen from that? And I think by giving people a sense of an ability to walk through that theoretical, they can decide whether that is uh, desirable to them or not. And if not, well, then begins, I guess, the long journey of <laughs> figuring out what the hell to do about it. But that's that's, right. uh, that's, that's kind of the journey of a lifetime, right? But uh, Joe, this was awesome. I, I really appreciate the chance of, of getting to dive into this with you. I, I love how much uh, thinking went into this. Uh, yeah, really appreciate the time. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I think a key thing to remember about this essay is this isn't exactly Joe making predictions so much as following a logical thought process following a logical thought train that allows him to kind of see if this happens, then this likely happens, then this likely happens, then this likely happens. And I think that that's a really useful mental model for looking at the world. But I would encourage everyone to go do their own versions of this thought progression around second order effects to figure out what comes out on the other side. Because the reality is, and I kind of alluded to this at the beginning of, of the intro of this conversation, we are currently acted upon by the world. We are all kind of stuck in our houses and, and feel very little agency. But the future is, to some extent, what we make of it. We all have varying degrees of power to influence outcomes, and some things end up having the force of feeling like inevitability. But there's much more room to shape the future to have it be what we want it to be than I think we give ourselves credit for. So do the work to actually think through your own second, third order effects, what you believe will happen. And when you see something you don't like, fight against it in whatever way you have, using whatever levers of power you have. And then tell me about it on Twitter. I'm at NLW. Maybe we'll talk about it on The Breakdown. Thanks as always, guys, for listening. I really appreciate it. You can now subscribe via Twitter or get these podcasts via Twitter at BreakdownNLW is the podcast handle. And for now, guys, be safe. And as always, take care of each other. Peace.